Welcome to the Fulfilled Podcast. The podcast designed to spark fundraising inspiration for your nonprofit through thought-provoking interviews with world-leading fundraising experts. Fulfilled brings a unique interview style approach where we ask the most important questions of our expert guests to help nonprofits excel in their fundraising efforts. Feel inspired and feel fulfilled with knowledge so your nonprofit can continue to make a positive impact and create change for a better world. Hi everyone, Jake from Fulfilled. Today I'm in Melbourne City at Trust for Nature talking with the Fundraising and Marketing Executive Manager, Leanne Down. Leanne, thanks for coming on Fulfilled. Thanks for having me, Jake. That's good. Mm-hmm. So. How did your career begin in fundraising? What were you doing? Yeah, absolutely. So at the time, I was actually on maternity leave and one of my clients who was a fundraising consultant called DBA Navion asked if I would help out in the short term. And I thought, yeah, be fun. I know you as a person, you're a client. And it went from there. I stayed there 11 years. Oh, wow. So was fundraising something you fell in love with to begin with or did it take a few years to get to that point? No, look, I absolutely love it. I feel honoured on a daily basis to be able to work with people and, um, you know, that have their values aligned with the organisation that I'm working with. So I find that very humbling. So DVA Navian, it's a international fundraising consultancy firm. Yes. What were you doing there and how did your role change over time? Yeah, sure. Look, it evolved over those 11 years. Uh, I started predominantly just off of customer service, really, just ensuring that their direct mail campaigns were um, really implemented, designed, the strategy behind them was there and then saw it all the way through to execution. Over time, I really evolved onto then looking at a not-for-profit strategy overall and ensuring that there was a holistic approach to all of their campaigns. And then again, evolved a bit more further down where I was really consulting, even at times just actually sitting in with the not-for-profit and acting like a bit of a staff member there, ensuring that everything was really approached in a way that incorporated uh, all the divisions of those organisations and tried to deliver for all of those areas of the organisation. Yeah. What were some key lessons you learnt in those early early years? Yeah, that not-for-profits run very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that funding is always driving, well, a driving factor behind everything that any not-for-profit wants to do. That even though a lot of them were really visionary in the sense that they, what they wanted to achieve, the funding didn't also, didn't necessarily allow them to do that and allow that foresight to happen. Um, I also learned that to be a successful fundraiser or consultant, you really need to be what the other end is. So for here at Trust for Nature, you need to think of what the end result is. If it's a humanitarian organisation, you need to to think about what that end result is because if you know where you want to end up, you know how you need to get there. And that was um, very challenging at times because you can't always be where you wanted to be Mm. Um, but certainly it allowed me during those fundraising consultant years to work with many many organizations through the sector and it could have been health it could have been sporting organizations could have been academia humanitarian welfare whatever it was i learned a lot Mm. so it was um 
agile. I guess in a nutshell, you needed to be agile. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how did you earn the trust of these organizations that you worked for? Yeah, I think through results, really. There's, um, uh, you know, listening to what they wanted, uh, listening to the challenges that they had and trying to offer solutions that would help them in a short term. And then that would engage them in the trust to then say, okay, we'll, we'll try something else. And perhaps we'll just change this and see what that does. And we'll test this and see what results that bring us. And in time that, um, you know, you create a great relationship with those people. And it's always nice when you're achieving good results. So. When you started at DVA Navian, and as time went on, um, how did you see yourself having the biggest impact there? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, the biggest impact I think I had was really the ability to learn. I was quite in, I had a lot of innovation. Um, I am quite dynamic myself, and my background is marketing. So, um, you know, the ability to be creative and implement things is what I guess allowed me to succeed. Yeah. So in your time there, um, you don't have to go into the client specific. Sure, summer, sure. But what stands out as some of your most memorable moments there? For the right yeah, reasons. That is. For the right reasons. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of right reasons. I guess you know, to be to tech to be technical, beating targets. That was um, exciting it's very very memorable i guess there was one where we were doing a little bit of a benchmarking exercise with a particular organization and um it it was an overseas so it wasn't an australian organization it was an overseas organization and it was a hospital and we had to go in there and do an acquisition for, these for this particular hospital. And at that time, again, remember, this was a long time ago, the acquisition, I think percentage we had recruited something like 14% acquisition at that time was, was very successful and acquisition at that time was on the way up, but that was unheard of at that point in time. Yeah. So that was really exciting and um, yeah, lives those learnings lived with me yeah. <laughs> even up until now. Yeah, great. And how did you find the relationship being a consultant with in-house fundraising teams? Did you find the rela relationships were quite fragile or? Uh, look, I'm naturally a personable person, so I had the ability to engage with them um, quite well. There were times where absolutely you, you needed to stand back and really listen to what they wanted because it's quite easy to come in and say no you've got to do it this way and a consultant has that um you know my ceo at the time always used to say that a fundraising manager could sit there to see his ceo and say well this is what you need to do and then a fundraise fundraising consultant would come in and say the exact same thing and then listen to the consultant but not the fundraising manager it's just you had that little bit of flexibility where you could almost like pull the pin of the grenade, throw it, yeah. and, you know, the trustees or the board would actually listen to you and management would listen to you, whereas I felt that pain sometimes that a fundraising manager would have where they didn't necessarily have that um, ability to convince people internally. And that at times could either get them to gravitate to you or they could at times say, oh, hang on a minute, 
I don't want you to do this because it's making me look bad. But most of the time, they would gravitate. I mean, they engaged you for a reason. And working across so many different um, NGOs and with so many different fundraising teams, what were some recurring problems that you found within the teams? Yeah, uh, probably resourcing. You know, everyone's trying to do things on the smell of an oily rag. Yeah. Um, and everyone is, you know, ambitious as, as in a good way. Um, so it's about going after that low-hanging fruit and trying to deliver and then justifying why resource could be added. And today, and in this wonderful office that we're in, you're the Fundraising and Marketing Executive Manager yep. here, um, yep. Trust for Nature. So how did you see this as an opportunity for you to excel in this role? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess being a consultant for 11 years, I was hopeful that I had learnt a lot over that time and I has I was fortunate to have the ability to actually go out to many different organisations and implement and assist them with their fundraising strategies. So I thought, well, you know, it's probably time that I come out here and do it on my own and prove that I can do it from the other side. And mm. that's what the trust has brought for me. Yeah, great. And how did you find that transition? How have you found... Yeah. Um, the differences between life as a consultant and as an in-house fundraising manager. Yeah, well, it gave me a lot of empathy for my clients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, I found the transition in the beginning quite difficult because I'm used to going um, a thousand miles an hour. Mm. So I've had to learn to really slow down and that things don't go as fast and decisions can be, um, you know, can take time. Um, but on the flip side, I found it extremely exciting because now all of a sudden I was in control and all those wonderful ideas that I had as a consultant, I could implement them here. Mm. So it was um, it was really exciting. It was exciting to see the, um, the improvements that were made and certainly there wasn't anything that I had to scrap. It was about building upon and just refreshing and it was... It was exciting. Yeah. It was exciting, yeah. And you've been here for over two and a half years yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. How's fundraising changed in that time? Oh, uh, <laughs> I think the transfer of wealth and the distribution of wealth has definitely changed. People are a lot smarter with their money. Um, I think we're seeing, you know, acquisition is certainly a lot harder than it used to be. People are certainly aligned, are more, I feel, are more value-driven with their uh, financial support and their philanthropy than perhaps, you know, 10, 12 years ago where it was, yeah, let's let's support as many as we can, whereas now it's really, well, you know, the environment is an area of concern for me or, you know, I, I've got a, you know, someone who has an illness and they'll find an organisation that supports that. Um, and I think people are a lot more conscious with where they distribute their money as well cost of living has gone up so naturally people will look after themselves first and um, you know as as a not-for-profit with a fundraising background um, I would always encourage to look after yourself even when it comes to the bequest look after yourself look after your family and if there's anything left over please remember us yeah yeah which areas of fundraising do you think trust for nature gets the most value out of and you focus more on yeah that is look with this particular organization that's an interesting question because we have a spread of many different supporters the um we have what we what we call our covenant tours, which are people who have voluntarily chosen to put a conservation covenant on their land. So we deal with private land conservation, and that type of commitment is 
extremely honourable to be able to say I've protected this land forever. Um, they are our most loyal supporters. They understand it. You know, anyone that supports us in our little bubble here at the Trust who understands the environment, who understands biodiversity, who understands conservation, are very easy to convert because they understand what we do is in perpetuity. However, mm. new donors and acquisition of new donors can be challenging because it can be at times a hard proposition. So it's about... Um, simplifying the message without cheapening the message. And that's probably what I found challenging, but the loyal remain loyal and very loyal, uh, very loyal and, and continue to give and give more and more. So your role is marketing and fundraising. I mean, how do you utilize these two very different um, professions, I guess, within yeah. your team? Yeah, so I guess for me, you know, a lot of people do separate them, but I see it very much as a, a nice happy marriage because the marketing or the marketer in me wants to make everything pretty and wonderful but the fundraiser in me needs to ensure that it's not perceived as being too elaborate and too expensive but it's about that nice balance of ensuring that any visual elements that are created complement the fundraising and communications that are developed and it's what is it? It's coming up September here. So, yeah. you know, we're getting a bit further away from the tax appeal, but it's sure. still, I'm sure it's still very, um, very clear in your mind yeah. about going through that. But yeah, how was this year's tax appeal for Trust for Nature? Sure. This year's tax appeal was the most successful that the Trust has ever seen. Um, I put that down to last year, so this time last year, we had put out to our supporters a survey and we actually asked them what was important to them. And that became the topic for our tax appeal mm -hmm. this year. And because we listened to them and we wrote to them about what was important to them, I believe that's why it was the most successful that the Trust has seen. Yeah, great. And how did you communicate with them this year? Was it, did you try anything new or? Sure, yeah, well, we did several different, well, when we roll out a appeal, I, address it or focus it as a campaign so it's always a multifaceted channel campaign so you would see both print and digital and media and everything else that goes along with it it's a generally a three-month campaign because that's the way we do things here that sit that sits well with our supporters um, without treating them like ATMs that's very very important um, so one thing that we did that was different this year is certainly we used the survey to help inform our topic but we also gave supporters the opportunity to um, fund projects so we we submitted a list of projects um, that were of small value for the trust um, but allowed the supporters to say well yeah i could give this or i could actually complete that project and that worked out well, I mean, like it's it's not often that the trust would give um, that opportunity for people, but supporters and, and people in general like to see an impact, like to say, well, I made that happen and, and, and I'm just the broker to, to make that happen for them. Yeah, it makes it a bit more tangible, doesn't it? Does, it? it does. People love outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when you look at the three-month campaign, I mean, where does it start? I mean, do you just build up on the message? Is it constant progress reports? Yeah, look, there's there needs to be a nice balance between asking and thanking and information and, you know, 
that nice balance back. Mm -hmm. And um, as I say to the team, you need to understand that different audiences like different channels of communication. So even though it may seem like we're repeating ourselves, it's actually, well, not everybody sees our social media and not everybody sees our emails. And because we are at all a conservation organisations, a lot of people are off the grid. Mm -hmm. So they may not see digital and we may need to do print. And, you know, it's it's, um, about getting our volunteers involved as well. And it's about creating that culture through the organisation where everybody's a fundraiser and everybody can make someone's dream come true. So um, the three month campaign here allows for all of that to happen and different messaging through different platforms, through different audiences. Um, and coming up Christmas, I mean, will you be doing anything different for your next appeal or will you still go with the approach of this is a problem and this is how we solve it. No, so this year we're actually using case studies to demonstrate the impact and the support. Um, it's a little bit of a different approach that we haven't tried here at the Trust before. Generally, we've um, created appeals and ask that revolve around their money making something happen, whereas now we're demonstrating the money that they've supported with in the past, what that's actually gone to and how further funding can assist. And. Um you know, a, a three-month campaign and campaigns like that uh, takes the work of many people. It you know, does indeed. And being within a fundraising team, it's a tireless effort trying to get that out yeah. there. I mean, coming from a consultancy background, what do you think is important to hold on to in-house and what do you think is important to outsource? Yeah, look, there are many things that um, deviate someone's attention and things that I view important for my team. I've got an amazing team that um, I encourage collaboration with all the time. And also that allows the opportunity for cross crossing skill sets, you know, it allows someone else to grow as well. But things that um, I feel in this organisation that work well is uh, sometimes a lot of the heavy lifting of the writing where we can give the direction um, we would certainly collate all of the information that needs to be prepared. And then, you know, you're not going to be interrupted as a consultant or as a contractor. Can you just sit down and just help us write this? And it might take them a day, whereas it might take us two to three weeks of five minutes here and 20 minutes there and, and so forth. So that's what um, we do with a lot of our things. Um, well, I shouldn't say with a lot of our things, with some things. Um, but other than that, we keep everything internal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big task. How many people in the team? So I have um, I have four people in the team and then I have three contractors that come in and out that assist with things. And how do you get the best out of them? I mean, coming from your experience of... Yeah. Uh, doing the math here of 13 years. Yeah. Um, what advice do you give them? For me, I've always felt strongly that I put people together that complement the skill set that I have. Um, for a number of reasons, I don't want someone that's a clone of me. I want someone that's going to bring new ideas and fresh energy to something that they feel that they're empowered to be able to make suggestions where I could think oh, that could really work and, you know, overall, obviously I need to look at things from a much bigger perspective than perhaps the, the isolated view that they may have. But I encourage that. I actually want fresh people, people with fresh ideas that 
feel empowered that can actually come in and make a suggestion and say, let's rock it. Yeah, well, it sounds like it's working. So. Yeah, look, they're a great team. They really are. I'm very fortunate to have them. So, yeah. I, you know, like many managers, they don't. we don't do it on our own. There is a team behind us and there's an organisation behind us that are delivering the amazing things that we're trying to raise funds for. Yeah. So it's certainly not me, not just me. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's a problem I hear from a few uh, fundraising managers and directors is actually holding on to staff. I yeah. think um, there's a lot of moving around in the profession that we do. And, yeah. I mean, is there anything you do specifically to um, motivate staff or try and keep them within the team? Yeah, look, um, I'm a pretty fun and relaxed person, so I think you need to create the environment where they feel happy, yeah. first and foremost, and appreciated as well. You know, I've, I um, always ensure I, I say thank you and well done and give credit where credit's due. I think that's very important. People like to feel uh, appreciated. Um, you know, in saying that, it doesn't mean I haven't lost people along the way. Uh, there was someone that I lost quite recently who decided to get a job closer to home. I can't compete with that. Um, and you can't compete with people who want to progress in their career. And in actual fact, I would encourage that. I would hope that in you know two years' time, I probably do have a different team or a team that looks different because we've evolved. Yeah. So... Um, it's kind of nice, and as sad as it is, it's nice to see people growing and evolving, and I would encourage that. Yeah, well, I've had a, definitely a good impression coming into the office. Yeah, so that's good. <laughs> good. Um, so, you know, operating in a wildlife and land protection um, NGO, yep. I mean, how do you get that message through to new donors as part of an acquisition strategy? Yeah, so for me, that's where the communications and the media and the PR come into it. If we keep our brand up and elevated, and continuously out there, then our, mas- our message becomes easier to understand. Um, it is challenging. It's not. It's not easy. It's not an easy gig. Um, and you know, you need to have a really nice hook and a really nice story to tell, or a sad story to tell. It, it depends. You know, again, what you're trying to get out there. But we found that the audience that we speak to, and generally in this climate of um, you know, the actual climate itself, climate change and global warming and biodiversity, whichever way you want to refer to it, people really enjoy hearing the success stories. So whether it's the species identification or or finding new species or being able to um, complement other organisations that are working in the same sector, um, to share their stories as well. I mean, one thing that I found quite different on this side and particularly in the conservation environment sector is the collaboration with other organisations because we view it that it's not just uh, an issue that's our problem, it's a global issue. So coming together and working with so many other environmental organisations is actually really refreshing because we were able to demonstrate achievements throughout many, many different areas. So, yeah. I've got about three questions that all stem off that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, in terms of working with other like-minded organisations, I guess, how do you collaborate with fundraising teams? Is there like a collaboration of fundraising efforts from yeah. that? So maybe not necessarily fundraising, but we will definitely 
give pats on the back to each other um, because, again, we're all after the same thing and that's a protected environment because what's really, really important is if we don't have a healthy environment, then we don't have a healthy human species. Um, and I think humans forget that at the end that we actually rely on the environment to be healthy and happy. But um, there is a large event that we actually do with another organisation being Bush Heritage. It's an event that is run on an annual basis and it's called Celebrating Women in Conservation. It has 470 people that attend every breakfast uh, or every year. And um, we have the ministers speak at that. We allow our keynote speakers, you know, to help propel them career as well we showcase them it's we pick topics that is relevant at the time and it's an amazing networking opportunity now it doesn't generate fundings funds generally it just covers costs but it allows for amazing collaboration which again which is what we're about that's really the only thing that we do in collaboration for funding um, other than grants and money on ground works yeah so how do you I guess split the, uh, I won't say necessarily, as you say, it breaks even, but yeah. I guess the people that come through, it's an opportunity to get them familiar with your organisation. Sure. And there's two organisations put out there. I mean, is that discussed before doing this? Um, not really, because both ourselves and Bush Heritage have very different offerings. So even though there's a lot of organisations out there really trying to deliver the same thing. We all have our little niche and our little focus and our little mission. So we're not really jumping on each other to compete. It's more about, well, if a particular, you know, earlier on in the interview I mentioned about aligning values with supporters, those supporters are, you know, if they're really about reserves and wanting to go onto reserves, then they'll probably gravitate towards bush heritage. We're about private land conservation. So if you've got land yourself that you want to protect, that's where you'll come to us. Yeah. So it's not really about, um, you know, taking donors from each other. It's really about you're not going to convert a donor or a supporter if it doesn't align with their values. Yeah, all focused on the donor and the cause. Exactly, the exactly. Yeah. It's what, what they're gravitating to. Yeah, it wasn't like a testing question. Or no, <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. Yeah. Um, so when you sit down with your um, your media relations officer or public relations and yeah. do that i mean what goes into the thinking there do you have do you look at what media will work best for you what news is happening around the yeah. country that yeah. will connect with your audience yeah so we are statewide so we will focus predominantly on victoria unless it's a collaboration with um a much larger national organization um so we just we it's it's a balance of what can raise the profile of the organization and what can share the good news it's um it's really comes down to that because it's important that we continue to keep the profile elevated and it is continue it is really important to continue sharing the good news yeah and do you have to nurture relationships with reporters or publications or anything like that or are they just willing to help a bit of both, yeah. a bit of both. I think it's um, every individual is different, so it's about adapting to what and how that person likes to work. Some people are happy with media releases, other people want to come straight onto the ground and see what we're doing, and other people are just over the phone. It's just, it's, you know, six and one half dozen of the other. You need to, as I said before, you need to be agile. So what have you found um, goes into a really effective regular giving campaign? 
regular giving for us is probably um, not as strong as it would be for others. Uh, we've found that our supporters are really gravitate to more of a path type of giving um, and understanding that certainly helps inform our strategy. So our regular giving is quite passive in comparison to a lot of other charities out there. And, um, you know, we're probably increasing it at a small, a very small percentage year on year. Yeah. But in saying that the gifts on a monthly basis or a regular basis are increasing. So average gift is going up. We're recruiting at a passive rate, um, but it is our smaller stream of income in our overall strategy. And um, how do you nurture your supporters, your, um, you know, your major donors? Yeah, yeah. So we have giving circles. We have ensured that um, every, every supporter or donor has a strategy just for them Um, and that is really important because we're then able to nurture them and speak to them about what interests them. We found that to be very, very successful. Um, It's all about the relationships and the time invested that you have with them. There's a lot of formulas that go around in in fundraising that you you may need to do 12 contacts a year or you may need to have this many face-to-face visits. We certainly keep that in mind. It's, It's absolutely important that you keep in front of the donors and the supporters talking to them. But it's about here in this particular organisation ensuring that you allow them to come in. And that was one of the strategies that I brought here where, you know, this very room that we're sitting in is we transform this room into um, an event every quarter and allow the donors to come in and we speak to them. We get keynote speakers here and we have celebrations here and the board comes in and mm. it's it's really integrated because it's very important for me to have a transparent organisation. Yeah, and how important do you think it is for supporters to even come into the office, you know, f- see what you do? Yeah. I mean, it must be quite far removed to take them to see some of your projects. Yeah, look, they love it. They love it. But in saying that, they do love getting out and about. And we have a program that allows them, which is actually running now at the moment, it's called Spring Into Nature, where we open up some of our private properties. Um, and we have 16 events that are going on that people come in and they, well, come in, go out yeah. to the properties and have field days and have the opportunity to either plant or walk through and have an Indigenous elder educate them about properties and natural values on the land. Um, it's it's a very diverse offering that we have here and we try to keep it mixed up constantly mm-hmm. so that it allows people to gravitate to what they enjoy. And is that, um, do you do any other events during the calendar year? Or? Um, we run events to complement our strategy rather than running them for the state of it. Um, they're very resource intensive. Uh, next week we're actually running a launch of a particular fund. We had a extremely generous donor who um, who has offered to match a dollar per dollar gift up to half a million dollars for an endowment fund for a particular region and we are launching that fund next week it's again you know it's really humbling that we're able to work with these people to make what they envisage in their dreams 
become a reality that's in line with our organisation. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's very much complementary rather than just have an event for the sake of it. And how much emphasis do you put on legacy gifts? A lot. Um, and my approach to that is we do a lot because we want to ensure that we're thanking them while they're here with us. Um, hence why we open up our organisation, allow them to come in and listen to other you know, legacy gifts that they're intending to make and why they've made that decision. And it allows us the opportunity to actually speak to them about their wishes and what they're wanting to do. And again, ensuring that the gift isn't too tight because then we'll never use it. Um, you know, and then showing them the things that can actually be done with their gift. And it's it's actually really nice. I mean, like, it's sad also. I mean, like, people, I think people sometimes forget the humanity elements behind it. You, you build a, a bond with these people and, you know, then you lose them. Mm. And um, even though it's very nice that they're, they're giving that gift, you need a certain type of person to to understand that, that it's all about empathy and it's about, you know, people aren't ATMs. They are human beings and they have their visions and their values and their ethics and it's about complementing them. And, and many a times I've actually said to someone, look, I, I don't think I can actually do that because, A, it doesn't align with the organisation. I don't think it's what you actually really want. Mm. So it's um, about that nice balance of, building that trust with somebody and and being in a position to actually say, you know, thank you, Jay. Yeah. That's really nice. It's really nice that I can say thank you for that now. Yeah, what, what, what do you think really motivates these um, legacy gift givers? Passion. Yeah. Passion. Oh, I just, um, you know, with a lot of us, I guess, we have supporters that, may have grown up in the country or may have grown up on the land, working with the land. Um, they may have experienced particular species that may no longer be around. And, you know, you listen to them, and, and I'm actually getting kind of goosebumps now. Yeah. I love listening to people's stories. But you listen to them and you can almost hear and feel the sorrow that, um, that they're experiencing when... And you could probably experience it yourself. You know, there'd be a time when, as a kid, you walked outside and you'd just hear birds everywhere. Mm. And now you'd probably walk out and now you're a bit more conscious about it and you'd think, oh, it's not as many birds as I used to hear. And, you know, and you'd, I remember walking down particular streets as I'd walk my dog and there'd be like all these flies and butterflies and caterpillars and everything just dropping and flying around you and there's not that much of that anymore. And it's... Everything is connected to each other and that's what drives these people to leave a legacy because they've either got grandkids or children of their own or they reminisce and they understand that there used to be a, a blue-billed duck and now they don't see that blue-billed duck anymore or there used to be, um, you know, we've got a lot of bird people that, that love it because people understand the importance of birds. But, you know, maybe just a basic echidna that may have been around there that isn't as common now or um you know they drive through a particular area and you see lots of dead wombats whereas we've encroached on their land they haven't come onto our land so they're getting hit by these by us yeah. you know and and they understand that they understand that you can't stop urban development but you can mitigate as the damage that we do yeah. and that's what their legacy gifts 
may mean to them, but it's about listening to them. It's really important that you listen to what they want and see if that you can actually support what their wishes are. Yeah. So go to them with a, a powerful story. Go to them with yeah. effective copywriting, um, the case studies, as you mentioned. And I think we all know that the most effective way is to um, knock on a door and sit down and talk to them or bring yeah. them into the office. Or, yeah. I mean, often it's just not the case. I mean, you don't have all the time in the world, but how else do you keep them engaged? I mean, there's a lot of talk around, um, you know, DM is dead. Do you believe that? DM is dead. Yeah. Uh, I think it has its place. Yeah. I think everything is um, constantly evolving and you need to evolve with it. As I mentioned earlier, different people respond to different things and different mediums and different channels require different communication. So I wouldn't say it's dead. It's certainly not dead here in this organisation. It has its place. Yeah. Yeah, great. All right, so I asked it earlier about um, how fundraising has changed in the time you've been at Trust yeah. for Nature, but looking about back at your whole career, yeah. I mean, what do you feel has changed most in fundraising? Digital, yeah. absolutely digital. Um, done well, it's brilliant. Done badly, it's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, absolutely digital. The social media, um, the, you know, everything's so instant now. Um, keeping people engaged quickly on social media is very, it can be challenging. Picking the right stories, the right imagery, um, the right audience. If you're doing paid posts, what does that look like? Is it a digital communication with a corporate sector or is it with a, you know, a, a mum and dad investor? Is it with a trust and foundation? It's very you need to be two steps ahead constantly but yeah definitely digital is what's changed the most yeah so what do you do when you sit down with um sorry your digital engagement yeah yeah um so what do you what goes into the planning there um so that is done at the front with the campaign planning um and there is a communications plan that is mapped out and together with that is the um visual elements that complement everything so we do very much multi-level our our campaigns um it's 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 hard to explain it without really walking you through it um it helps when you've got clever people working with you because they discover or they're aware of new platforms to use or new toys to introduce or um it's about being being open to taking risks mm-hmm. as well you know as the marketer in me is, is all about taking the risks the um communicator in me is all about the talking and oversharing and the fundraiser in me is all about the well, where's the revenue going to come from it's um it's challenging being a for-profit arm in a not-for-profit organisation because if we were out in the corporate world, money wouldn't be as challenging and you know, being allocated to us. So it's about being creative with how we use our money. Yeah, and I know that there will be many um, NGOs, fundraising teams, really struggling to make headway and um, social media and for their organization and the engagement isn't there why do you think your audience is so engaged they understand our cause and our mission and to be fair as well we are the only organization in the state that can do what we can do Mm. so they 
yeah, they have to understand what we do. That keeps them very loyal for us. Yeah, great. And what do you think will change most in the next five to 10 years? Again, I think it's probably that transfer of wealth. Um, we're seeing the attrition of, I guess, the, the seniors and the octarian types um, as the baby boomers have inherited a lot more money and they're a lot cleverer with their distribution of wealth. Um, I think maybe five years, maybe too short, maybe same as 10 years, but the younger generation in our little sector will certainly, they are more driven and more passionate, more outspoken than the generations before them. They're more entitled, which um, is a good thing in this sense. Um, They understand that the planet that we're leaving behind isn't good. So they're very vocal, really, really vocal. And I think we'll see a lot more activism around it as well. Um, You know, every NGO has started with some sort of a movement you know, where someone had a belief that they believed in something and then it all started from there. So it would be interesting to see what other organisations pop up in support of that and if the distribution, you know, plateaus a bit more. Um, I think there's 56,000 not-for-profits at the moment. So you can, at the rate that I think they're popping up at about 1,000 per year. So you'd have to think at some point in time that we'd start to see a plateau of sorts until maybe some don't actually gravitate to others or they'll start to consolidate or they'll start to pick, you know, perhaps one environment, one health or, one, you know, whatever resonates with them and, and their views. Yeah, great. And do you feel that there's an opportunity that fundraisers are missing right now? Um, I guess it's hard to say because what's an opportunity look like for that fundraiser and that organisation, but I think the opportunity that anyone would be missing would be to not communicate, to really not be talking to your donors and just taking them for granted. So where does the next 10 years look for you? What are you striving for? Wow, well, I'd certainly like to progress in my career, I guess. I'd love to lead an organisation of like-minded people and create a culture where everyone feels like that they are actually contributing and achieving, I mean, like, yeah, I'd love to move into some sort of directorship role or CEO role and whatever that looks like, as long as it's aligned with my values and people can handle the giggles along the way, then, yeah, that's really where I'd love to see myself. Yeah, well, I think the sector needs more fundraising and lead CEOs, so there you go. But um, not back into consultancy? No, look, I never say never. Um, I'm really passionate and and excited about the fact that, you know, I'm a female and I'm here in an executive role because I know it is challenging and and I hope that, you know, if for anyone else that actually sees this or watches this, that they can learn something from me and and say that they could be there as well. And my CEO of this organisation is female. Uh, I think three quarters of my board is female. Um, So that is very inspiring to me and I hope that one day I can aspire to, you know, go into a, a, a leadership role like that as a CEO and then whether it's a board as well, it, it, it just shows for me that those opportunities are there and that I can actually pursue them if I want to. Yeah, great. Well, I'm sure it won't be too long to you. Thank you. Up at those heights. But, <laughs> Thank um, you. So what's your final piece of advice to inspire and fulfil fundraisers to make a positive impact and yeah. create change for a better world? Keep the passion going and don't be scared to try.
Great, great <laughs> advice. Thank you, Leanne. <laughs> Thank you very yeah, much, Jake. Yeah, Thank yeah. you.